Welcome to PwC's Tax Readiness Podcast Series. This podcast is an excerpt from PwC's Tax Readiness Webcast Series, held on December 17, 2019, Tax Readiness, Profit Reallocation, and a Global Minimum Tax. The panelists for the webcast were Pam Olson, PwC's U.S. Deputy Tax Leader and Washington National Tax Services Leader, Will Morris, PwC's Deputy Global Tax Leader, Kartike Singh, a partner in PwC's Transfer Pricing Practice, Carl Rousseau, a director in PwC's National Economic and Statistics Practice. This excerpt consists of a discussion of the role of economic analysis. Have a listen. So, uh, Kartike, we have had the arm's length principle for... 100 years? Close to 100 years, yeah. yeah. give or take. Um, so what's the impact, economic impact, of departing from the arm's length principle? Well, one is it, it introduces the kinds of complexities and questions that we've been talking about. Uh, I mean, you know, people have been saying that the arm's length principle is complex to administer. It creates disputes. But think about all the issues that we've been talking about and that, you know, haven't been had to address. Uh, so that is one. But the second is... You know, when you go back in time, like you said, I mean, the, the arm's length principle was adopted in the U.S. Revenue Act in 1928 by the League of Nations as an income allocation principle in 1933. There were certain uh, higher uh, principles uh, or objectives that, you know, were seen to be, uh, you know, preferred, that, 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 that the arm's length principle uh, uh, achieved in principle over formulary means. And one big objective was uh, non-distortion, that... You know, when you're considering real decisions, economic decisions about uh, how to organize economic activity, whether you should go uh, and transact with an unrelated party or bring certain functions in-house, those decisions should not be impacted by tax considerations. And again, at least in principle, by requiring those kinds of transactions and dealings to be priced as if you were dealing at arm's length, to, therefore to emulate on, uh, you know, market outcomes, the arm's length principle prevents those kinds of distortions being introduced because of the tax, because of tax considerations. So if you dilute that principle, there is the potential that those uh, decisions will, in fact, be uh, influenced by tax considerations and bring with it all kinds of efficiency considerations, et cetera. Um, so let's now turn to the uh, economic analysis. And Carl, if we could start with you um, with uh, what we know from the OECD so far. Certainly. So the OECD has uh, discussed the fact that they've undertaken some preliminary economic analysis of these proposals uh, and that they expect to uh, release some more detail and anticipate releasing that initial draft sometime early next year. Uh, But what will it show? I mean, it's an open question. And one of the reasons why we can't be more definitive at this point about what that analysis will show is because of these open design issues that we've been talking about here. Until the proposals are more baked, to continue this analogy, uh, it's going to be difficult to judge them. And it's going to be important to know uh, how companies and countries would respond and the particular decisions you make with respect to each of these design choices is going to have significant effects on the revenue that governments could expect to get and how companies might respond and in, in, in to those. So, so, Carl, in the conversations that we have here in the U.S., we oftentimes talk about static scoring versus dynamic scoring, and it seems like even in this case, static would be difficult because of the lack of detail. That's right. And, and then when you factor in 
Right. So if you were just trying to figure out a recomputation of people's taxes under a new set of rules, which would be a fully static analysis, that would still be very interesting information, I think, to a lot of the participants in this mm -hmm. process. But even that is a very challenging uh, endeavor if you don't know what the proposal is. And then if you were going to move from that to sort of a dynamic estimate that would look at how people might respond to those new incentives once they're in place, uh, it's, a, it's a significant uh, layer, layer of uh, additional analysis that would be required. And that's before you get to any questions about whether then it would have any macroeconomic effects. Uh, now, the OECD has said they don't expect any negative effects at the macroeconomic level on business investment. Uh, they expect pillar one to be relatively modest and pillar two to raise some money, as uh, Will had said earlier. Uh, but the only way you don't get any business investment response is if the tax is truly limited to those uh, above normal returns in sort of the old sense of that word. Mm -hmm. uh, if we're really applying this to what economists refer to as rents or supranormal profits, uh, things above which are required in order to get the investment to be undertaken at all. If it only applies in that context, then you could see how there might not be any effect on investment decision as a result of that. I don't think it's clear at this point from the design of the proposals that that's in fact how the tax would apply, but we do need to wait and see if that's where we end up. The other way in which you would not expect any uh, response to investment is if it doesn't actually result in any additional tax liability. Um, and I think if it did that, it would probably fail on the objectives of some of the participants in the process. Um, so what are governments and businesses really looking for? You know, the governments want to understand how these proposals are going to affect their tax bases and ultimately their revenue streams. And they might be disparate uh, incentives for governments under Pillar 1 or Pillar 2, so they might not be in the same place with respect to support uh, for either one. Uh, and businesses want to know how it's going to change the incentives for their business underlying economic activity. Um, so if we move on and think about what some of those potential behavior effects from the design issues, um, thinking uh, in some cases um, more rigorously about Pillar 2 because that is the one that's expected to have more uh, revenue consequences. Uh, and from the government side, uh, if you do have a rate that applies to all taxes everywhere and to all nations regardless where the investment is owned, then you might expect uh, governments to soak up that tax revenue. And if that money is going to flow to the treasuries of what are currently low tax jurisdictions as opposed to protecting the tax base of high tax countries, you might create different incentives for participation in this process on the government front. Um, and how you decide to apply those rules will matter a lot to whether or not soak up taxes are easier or harder to implement. Uh, and then you also have to think if it's going to take tax off the table for being able to encourage some of the activity like research and development that you want, you might see the proliferation of non-tax incentives. The economic literature is generally not very favorable to non-tax incentives because they tend to be less transparent than tax rules. You, know, you can see the tax law and figure out who might be, what kinds of activities might benefit. If it's non-tax, you lose some of that. Uh, and they may not be as effective at targeting the activity as well. But if tax is off the table, you might see more of that behavior start to uh, proliferate. How about the business impact? What, how's business going to respond? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, Carl touched upon a few issues. A big question, uh, I mean, the first order question for me is what would these rules do towards, um, in terms of shaping the overall um, investment climate? What would, it, what, what would they do to the overall scale of investment? And um, that goes back to, you know, what you were talking about, Carl, in terms of when you're going to look at the interplay between these rules, is the overall tax burden on the return on capital going to go up? And is that going to go up 
on just the above normal returns, in which case maybe the scale um, uh, of investment is not going to get impacted, or because if you just even look at pillar one uh, rules, it's, it's relying on very formulaic conventions, blunt instruments, et cetera, it may be that the normal return uh, does bear uh, a burden of uh, higher taxes through a combination of pillar one and pillar two, which means that the scale of investment activity overall at a macro level is likely going to be impacted. So that's, you know, uh, first order impact at, at the scale of investment. Then the second question that I have, again, looking at investment um, issues, is does, does, do these rules alter uh, the allocation of investment across different sectors, uh, different businesses? It's possible that certain kinds of business models, uh, certain kinds of industries, sectors, et cetera, get impacted more. And that cost of capital impact that I was talking about impacts certain industries uh, more than others, in which case your investment allocation uh, may be impacted and may face the brunt um, of you know, these new rules. And the second question, again, at a very, very high level, you know, we, we've been in an environment where we've heard the, the people who criticize the existing system have said that you know, the international tax rules favor large multinationals because it affords them the possibility of using international tax planning to face a lower tax burden. And this is to the detriment, or in comparison, to the detriment of domestic-only firms. Uh, and I wonder, again, it's an open question, if the complexity of these rules, uh, the interplay, and all the stuff that we just talked about kind of flips the scales in a certain way where maybe your incentive incentives, uh, investment incentives are more aligned towards home countries and domestic only because you may not want to deal with uh, this kind of complexity that comes from being an international firm. So um, there are different kinds of potential distortions. Uh, we don't know yet because, as, as everyone said, we don't have the exact details on these rules. Mm -hmm. And then um, there's also the question of uh, what kind of tax planning uh, are we going to see? Uh, and what kind of tax planning is, is going to be um, shaped by, by the new set of rules in terms of you know, operating models, uh, payments, and, and so on and so forth. Okay, and this is just scratching the surface. In our prep session, we uh, came up with a good deal more. So let's turn to quickly to latest developments. Um, and uh, Will, um, if you could take yeah. us through uh, the exchange of letters from a week ago. That's right, uh, two weeks now. Two weeks. Okay. Exciting two weeks. Oh, yes. Um, uh, yeah, so um, uh, first or second day of December, um, a, a letter, at least as far as the OECD was concerned, and indeed I think as far as most people were concerned, uh, dropped from a, a clear blue sky. Uh, and this was a letter from Secretary Mnuchin to the OECD Secretary General, uh, and it said a couple of things, which um, you can read on the slide in front of you. Um, but the basic message was the U.S. supports this process, continues to support this process. It's a very important process. The U.S. does not like DSTs. The U.S. has always been very clear uh, about the fact that it, it doesn't like uh, DSTs. Sort of newer parts, um, uh, congressional action will be required to get this done. I mean, we obviously knew that at one level. But obviously, that's a political consideration um, now, which has been introduced into, the, into this. Um, uh, that broad support... and. Bear in mind that Treasury has done a lot of outreach to businesses to ask them what they think about the project, what parts they like, what parts they don't like. It says broad support does not exist for a mandatory departure from the arm's length principle uh, and from PE standards. Um, uh, and uh, therefore, while there would be support for Pillar 1 if it was effectively optional, they call it a safe harbor, 
but there will be support for pillar one if it is optional, the US will not support um, a mandatory uh, pillar one. Um, and it was well received by the OECD. Uh, it was, it, uh, okay, there was, there was the, uh, <laughs> you could almost hear the cheers from Paris on this side of the Atlantic, um, not quite. Um, uh, so uh, a letter came back relatively promptly from the OECD um, Secretary General. There was a, an amusing last paragraph suggesting that um, Stephen might like to get together with Angle and um, Bruno in Paris before Christmas, if he could be lured over. Um, but in the substance of the letter, it, firstly it said, well, it's great you're supporting the project. Um, but it did also say, but gee, you sort of expanded all this. Um, and we'd never heard anything about a safe harbor before, so, so where does this leave us? Uh, and that's a great question, where, where does this leave us? So there is US support for the project. Um, there is clearly concern about Pillar 1. Um, I think the big question is, um, effectively, from the US point of view, is this an opening bid or is this a final offer? Um, and time will tell. The negotiations get more and more interesting. They do. Uh, another line besides Yogi Berra's, wherever you go is where you are. So <laughs> here we are. So, um, uh, Carl, um, question for you. What is the economic impact of unilateral measures? like DSTs. Right, so digital services taxes are probably the most uh, salient of these unilateral measures that a number of countries are beginning to undertake. Uh, some will be effective this year, a number of new ones come online next year. And they uh, are essentially functioning like tariffs and they will, uh, literature on that suggests that they'll distort the production incentives for firms, that they may do different things as a result of having to treat some of the digital activities differently from the non-digital ones. You can think of a simple case of advertising. Do I shift my behavior uh, away from some of the digital activities towards others? And uh, the other issue with respect to the distortions that come from that is whether or not various unilateral regimes end up with just slightly different rules that increase the cost of compliance significantly. And that is not really in anybody's interest. It's a deadweight burden on the, on the businesses. It's money that doesn't flow into the treasuries of the countries that are trying to target this activity. And with an increase in the distortions from that, you just get a reduction in economic activity generally, and also the potential for double taxation. And that's tr potentially true not just of the digital services taxes, which might be taxing gross revenue instead of profit, uh, but also other measures that countries might undertake to the extent that they're not coordinated. Uh, you could end up with a significantly higher risk of that uh, double taxation or triple taxation occurring. Multiple levels Multiple of levels. Yes, Correct. indeed. Okay. Let's uh, get the key takeaways from the three of you. Um, Carl, can I start with you? What are, what are your key takeaways from this in a minute or less? Certainly. And what I want to just remind people is that incentives matter, that people respond to the incentives that they face, and it's important in both drafting any rules that uh, would apply to companies uh, that you think about whether you've got the incentives right for countries to participate and to agree, but also for taxpayers uh, to respond. And uh, w when you're making choices along the way, you want to think about those issues <clears throat> forefront in mind to make sure you get the outcomes that you think are desirable. Uh, and I, I just want to remind people, you know, incentives matter, prices matter, taxes will change those. You need to get those right. Okay. Will? Um, so complexity. Um, as we've talked both about Pillar 1 and Pillar 2, um, the, the complexity of this project becomes more and more apparent. As I said, you, you answer one question, you ask five more. There has to be a relentless focus uh, on, drive, on, on making sure that the complexity, and this is a complex issue, so it will be complex. There's no back of a postcard here. Mm -hmm. um, but nevertheless, that the complexity is driven down uh, as much as it can be. 
Uh, and that is probably going to require a little more time. However, I do want to make one other point about complexity, which is that um, you know, we can sound a little negative about this sometimes. I continue to believe that the counterfactual, um, which is no agreement, um, total unilateral um, uh, actions by countries, not just on DSTs, but on Nexus and all of those, that is much worse. And that will be much more complex because it will be even less coordinated. Um, so we do need, you know, it is worth working on this project. In working on this project, however, we need to focus on complexity. And, and maybe the time timeline as well. There's yes. a there's the law of the conservation of ambiguity, which I think applies right. to your you answer one question and five more arise from the yep. answer. So, yep. Kartikeya, you get the last word on uh, key takeaways. So I'll focus on coherence um, and say what you will about the existing system that we have, but the fact is it's remained like you said, close to, you know, in existence for close to, it's sustained it's been, uh, for 100 years. And um, there's an internal consistency to that system, and that's why it's, it's sustained as long as, I, as it has. Uh, and my, um, my, my comment is as much uh, a concern as direction for future work on this project is about finding coherence in the new system on a principled basis. You know, just looking at Pillar 1, if you see how the proposals have evolved over the year, you know, you started with um, user participation, you had fractional apportionment on one end of the spectrum, you had, uh, you know, you have the unified approach here. But the starting points from a, from a conceptual principle standpoint and objective standpoint were very different. They were all trying to achieve different ob objectives. And there is a risk that in trying to combine these, uh, which, which are coming from very different uh, directions and objectives, through a mere uh, political process, rather than trying to reconcile on a, on a principle level, you might end up with a system that lacks that internal coherence. And that means that you're going to bring with it all the you know, uh, compliance burdens, uncertainty, uh, and have a system that may not be sustainable for too long. Thank you for listening to this Tax Readiness Podcast. If you have any questions about this topic, please contact the speakers. You can find their contact information in the description of this episode. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.